Okay, I'll ask everyone to find a seat and we'll get started. I'm going to pass back a um, handout again so everyone make sure you get a copy. We definitely have enough. You help? Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, we'll be singing. Oh, I, uh, I need one. <laughs> yeah. This has uh, seven hymns on it. We're not going to get to seven hymns today, but I thought you would like taking these home and you can uh, look through them. There's some old hymns and some new hymns. So we're at, we're at our final week of what makes a good hymn good. I hope you guys have enjoyed this class as much as I have. It breaks my heart that we're ending. Um, this was a welcome distraction from papers and finals and things like that. Um, so I, I was my birthday the other week and I got myself, I indulged and got myself a gift. This little book. Um, this is the, a reprint of the first edition only hymn book published by John Newton in 1779, and right, what other 23-year-old would want to read through this for his free time? Um, but this, was, uh, this is, includes all of Newton's famous hymns, Amazing Grace, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, written also with William Cooper, who you might recognize from hymns like God Moves in a Mysterious Way and um, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, other ones like that, For a Closer Walk with God. They were, he was... Um, a member at Newton's church, and they wrote hymns together for their congregation. I want to read for you a little piece from the preface from this hymnal. John Newton's writing here, and he's talking about uh, his, kind of his view on hymnody, and I think it goes along well with the two A's we've been talking about, um, the, the kind of overarching rubric. Overarching rubric. Um, if you remember, hymns need to be, do you remember the two A's, anyone? Acceptable to who? To God. And then what was the other one? Accessible to us. So here he's, he's talking about the accessibility of writing hymns. There is a style and manner suited to the composition of hymns, which may, may be more successfully or at least more easily attained by a versifier rather than a poet. So there he's talking about someone who can put things into rhyme easily, and as opposed to a poet who um, you know, writes odes and is really uh, a much more talented probably at... Um, uh, you know, what we would consider uh, high poetry. So he says, they should be hymns, not odes, because it's designed for public worship and for the use of plain people. Uh, perspicuity, which is clarity, simplicity, and ease should be chiefly attended to. And, and this is what he says, in the imagery and coloring of poetry, if admitted at all, should be indulged very sparingly and with great judgment. Which is interesting that he thinks that Imagery and poetry should be uh, used sparingly because we probably think most of his hymns are very beautiful. And uh, so it's, I wonder what he meant when he said that. He actually makes a little dig at Isaac Watts. The late Dr. Watts, many of whose hymns are admirable patterns in this species of writings, might as a poet have a right to say that it cost him labor to refrain his fire and to accommodate himself to the capacities of common readers. Um, it's known that Newton thought Isaac's uh, Watts' hymns were a little too complicated for the average person. So there he's kind of poking fun at him. But he says, not so with his hymns. Uh, he says, if the Lord whom I serve has been pleased to favor me with that mediocrity of talent, which may qualify me for usefulness to the weak and the poor of his flock without quite, <laughs> this is such old, old language, disgusting persons of superior discernment, I have reason to be satisfied. So we see that when he was writing hymns, he was really aiming to speak to the, the average person, that, what he calls the plain person. He wanted his hymns to be well understood so they would be accessible to us. Uh, if you want to take out your... Uh, handout. Um, we're going to split up. We have a lot of hymns to do, so we'll split up. We'll sing some hymns, then I'll talk some more, and then we'll sing to end. On the very last sheet, you see there are 
Um, yeah, if anyone doesn't have one, Mark has the remaining ones now. You see there's um, three different hymns, just the text for these. These are old hymns, some, most of them written by famous people that you probably know, but hymns that you probably have never heard before. Um, one is called Jehovah Sikhenu. Can you guys repeat that after me? Sikhenu. If you know your Hebrew, that's uh, the Lord of my righteousness. And um, that was written by Robert Murray McShane, a famous Scottish pastor who died when he was, I think, 27 or something very young, but he had written uh, commentaries and some hymns and a well-beloved preacher. You should read his biography by Andrew Bonar. Um, so this hymn it, uh, uses parallelisms, as we've talked about, and progression. It starts with his being a stranger to the grace of God, and this name, Jehovah's Kenyu, meant nothing to him. And as you read through, you'll see that um, it goes on soon that the grace from on high awoke him, and he realized that he was, uh, there was no refuge in himself, verse 3. So Jehovah's Kenyu, my Savior, must be. And he goes in verse 4, my terrors all vanquished, or vanished, before the sweet name, my guilty fears vanished. With boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah's Kenyu is all things to me. Beautiful poem. You could sing it to my Jesus, I love thee, if you want to, when you go home. The bottom one, Now Let Us Join With Hearts and Tongues, is by John Newton, and it's tracing the theme of Hebrews 2, where uh, man is adored and beloved above angels, and now Christ came to save men, not angels, and how Christ took on our flesh to redeem us, and uh, it's a beautiful exposition of that text. Let's try to sing the, the top one, His Be the Victor's Name. Do you guys all see that top right? Uh, this hymn uses uh, very wonderfully uh, some uh, paradoxes and things, uh, some just wonderful twists of phrases to show uh, gospel truths. So you'll see how uh, in verse 2, for instance, by weakness and defeat, he, Jesus, won a glorious crown, trod all our foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. So it's this idea of the, you know, the paradox of the gospel. Um, so let's sing this together. Uh, I, I'll put it to a tune you guys should all know. Do you, do you guys know this tune? Do you guys know that one? Okay, let's sing. His be the victor's name. His be the You guys might enjoy that. Now you can take that home and use it for your devotions. Um, so th these three hymns are just to show some of the things we've been talking about the past few weeks as far as use of form. 
So you can look through there and see how they're, you know, they're based in scripture, they're Christ-centered, and there's use of parallelisms and, um, and uh, other things that we've been talking about, progression, etc. Uh, turn to the second page, Lamb, Precious Lamb. This is a new one we'll learn. This is a hymn I wrote t- um, almost two years now, and it traces the theme of Christ being the Lamb of God throughout Scripture. It's the theme that reoccurs throughout Scripture. So um, I, we have de- several different verses. For instance, um, the first verse talks about uh, Christ uh, being the, the, the Passover sacrifice, the line three, thy paschal sacrifice is all my stay. Paschal means Passover um, and the fourth line there, dear lamb who came to take our sins away from John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse two borrows from first Peter talking about the lamb without blemish or spot and also Revelation 13, the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Verse three, uh, I, I worked with this idea of Christ being our lamb, but also our shepherd. And similarly in verse four, Christ being the lamb of God, but also the lion of Judah. So there's some, uh, some contrast there. And then finally, we go to Revelation 5 in the last verse, uh, how we will be singing, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Um, and I chose to write this with uh, in kind of old English style because I thought it better fit the, the, uh, you know, the gravitas of the, the theme or the, the content of the, the hymn. So here, I'll play it through. You guys can listen to it once. that uh, melodically the, the hymn reaches its climax in the fourth line um, which makes sense because as far as the text goes that was the climax of the text is always in the fourth line you might think duh it's the end you know it's the last line of the hymn that's always the climax but not so for instance in the last hymn we just sung really the climax is in the third line that's where it, it built up and the music fit with that so here you see where, uh, in both of these instance, uh, instances, the music matches the uh, strength of the text and the importance wherever that is in the, the verse. So uh, repeat after me. We'll do the call and response thing. Lamb, precious lamb, whose blood was shed for me. Try that. Lamb, precious lamb, whose blood was shed for me. Spread on the frame of Calvary's cruel tree. Spread on the frame of Calvary's cruel tree. Thy paschal sacrifice is all my stay. Thy paschal sacrifice is all my stay. Dear Lamb who came to take our sins away. Dear Lamb who came to take our sins away. Sorry, I messed that up for you. 
that sound like this. Okay, let's try to put it all together. Verse 2. Lamb, spotless lamb, for naught is wrong in thee. So there you have that, and there's another hymn on the other page. I have such a gracious father, I'll leave that for your consideration. You can take home, use as you'd like. Uh, for a couple minutes here, I want to talk about the use of hymnody in corporate worship. Um, we're going to look at it in three categories, and hopefully you'll recognize that all good hymns fall under one of these three categories, and if they don't, then it's probably not a good hymn. So we're looking at what's the purpose of singing in worship? Why are we singing? And uh, when we're looking at texts, we want them to fall under these categories. The first, I think, is pretty uh, self-explanatory, simple. You guys will probably get it. Why do we sing in church? I heard, what did you say, Chris? Sing praise to God. That's the first one. Hymns are for the purpose of praise. Told you it was simple. Don't overthink it, guys. It's okay. Um, Some people probably think that, actually, that's the only part of singing in worship is to praise God. There's no other categories, but as we'll see, um, it's only one aspect. People probably think this because, you know, we have terms like praise band, praise leader, praise team. Uh, so we think all we're doing when we sing is praising. But that's certainly, uh, you know, right, we don't have those terms. Our culture, our fallen sinful culture has those terms. Uh, we'll see, that's just one aspect, though. When we think of hymns as praise, uh, what we mean is we're, you know, uh, we're exalting God. Uh, we're, we're thanking him for who he is, and uh, what's the other one? What he has done. So this is, uh, this is seen throughout scripture, praise being 
praising God for who he is and what he has done. Um, This practice is seen numerous times throughout the Bible. For instance, Exodus 15, Moses, Miriam, and all the Israelites, right? They sing um, after the nation is delivered from the hands of Pharaoh. They're, They're moved to praise God. Or think of Judges 5, Deborah and Barak sang when God gave them victory. Um, over the Canaanites. Or 2 Samuel 22, which we'll get to in a couple months, maybe. Uh, David sang as the Lord delivered, uh, thinking back on how the Lord had delivered him from his enemies and from Saul. Luke 1, what's the song there, actually? Yeah, there's one song there. The Magnificat, which is Mary singing because she's, you know, realized that God is is working uh, his plan of redemption. He's going to use her. The Redeemer is going to be realized through her, so she sings praise the next chapter over, Simeon sings when he holds uh, baby Jesus. We call that the, does anyone know what we call that in Latin? I'm hoping someone knows because I'm blanking. I think it's the nunc dimittis, right? Yeah. Um, or think of texts like Colossians 1, Philippians 2, which many people consider hymns, uh, which is exalting Christ for who he is. And of course, we have the songs in Revelation 4 and 5, which sing of the Lamb, as we've just sung in our last hymn, uh, the Lamb, our Redeemer. Um, these are the songs we'll be singing for eternity, praising Christ for who he is and what he has done for us. Uh, That's why I've been stressing throughout these past weeks that hymns need to be not me-centered, but Christ-centered, focusing on the plan of redemption and what he has done for us. You know, whereas the Psalter shows how Israel sang praise to God for delivering them from slavery and from their enemies, you know, how can we not sing of our greater deliverance from sin and from death? Um, this, This is what makes our worship distinctively Christian, um, Isaac Watts, that's what he was after when he paraphrased, uh, when he wrote his psalm settings and paraphrased them. He worked Christ's fulfillment into them so people knew when they were singing how these were fulfilled by the Messiah. He, he's quoted as saying, In all places I have kept my grand design in view, and that is to teach my singer to sing like a Christian. So hymns of praise, we sing them every service. You have the doxology, the Gloria Patri, for example. Other ones... Uh, Alleluia, Alleluia, crown him with many crowns, praise the Savior now and ever. So, hymns fall under the category of hymns of praise. That's not the only thing, though. Hymns also serve for proclamation. Proclamation. And by this we mean that hymns and worship music ought to uh, teach and preach God's truth. Teach and preach God's truth. Um... Many people view the elements, hymn singing for sure, but really all the elements of a worship service as just kind of a preamble to the sermon. And we're waiting you know, to get through the rest of the service so we can get to the good stuff where we'll actually learn something. That's not the most biblical way to think of it. Uh, <laughs> a better way, a more biblical way to view uh, the worship service and certainly hymnody is that in some way, in some way it shares in the role of the ministry of the word. And that that is, it can work in tandem to teach us God's truth. Um, that's why I have been emphasizing again and again that hymns must not be based on our own imaginations, our own ideas, but based on Scripture. It's teaching us Scripture. Otherwise, there is no point in singing them. And I really mean that. If, this, if uh, you are looking at a hymn and it has nothing to do with the Bible, just some feelings, you can't, you can't find some kind of scriptural basis for anything you're singing, do not sing it. Do not sing it. Not, not in a worship service. Um, so an example of proclamation hymns would be hymns, uh, the hymns that we looked at last week, of Dr. Boyce and the one we sang today, which are sermonic in nature. They're really ex, um, exp, uh, expositions of certain passages of scripture. 
Other examples would be settings of like the Lord's Prayer, some people saying, or the Apostles' Creed, or catechetical hymns. So for instance, you guys are probably familiar with and love the hymn, I Have No Other Comfort. That's a proclamation hymn, teaching us God's truth. Um, Luther was a big advocate of hymns as proclamation. He said, God has his gospel preached through music too. God has his gospel preached through music too. I'm sure many of you are able to say yes and amen to that. If you're anything like me, there are certain times when the gospel will be most clearly articulated to you, not when you're reading your Bible, not when you're sitting listening to a sermon, but when you are singing a hymn. Something just hits you in a certain way, and it becomes realized to you in a way that you'd never understood before. Uh, Luther was an advocate of that. He went on to say, music and notes, which are wonderful gifts and creations of God, do help gain a better understanding of the text especially when sung by, by a congregation and sung earnestly. We want the beautiful art of music to be properly used to serve her dear creator and his Christians. He is thereby praised and honored, and here it is, we are made better and stronger in faith when his holy word is impressed on our hearts by sweet music. So I want you to consider that hymns, they're not just praise, we're not just exalting God for who he is, but they can serve this role of proclamation, teaching us and preaching us God's truth. So, uh, there's the first two. The last one, guess what? It starts with a P. I bet you didn't see that one coming. Uh, Hymns can be prayer. Hymns can be prayer. Um, This is, you know, well, first of all, I'll say, you've probably heard that uh, worship service is really split into two categories. God speaking to us, and then us responding, speaking back to God. So in that sense, all singing is prayer. We're speaking to God. But in a more specific sense, certain hymns are prayers when they, for instance, uh, petition God or plead with God or confess. Oh, I didn't have a P there. I'm sorry. Or, or confess sins to God. Or here's, the, here's the, the main way you can see if a hymn is used as a prayer is if it employs direct address, speaks directly to God as we would when we pray. Um, John Calvin clearly believed that singing uh, was praying. In his introduction to the 1543 Genevan Psalter, he wrote, as to the public prayers, these are of two kinds. Some are offered by means of words alone and others with song." And this is not a thing invented a little time ago, for it has existed since the first origin of the church. This appears from the histories and even St. Paul, who speaks not only of praying by words of mouth, but also of singing. So there's John Calvin. I got John Calvin and Luther on my side today, so I feel pretty confident in teaching. So Calvin says, singing is praying. So examples of hymns of prayer. Anybody think of any that come to mind? What's that? The Lord's Prayer, if you're singing the Lord's Prayer. How about some hymns that we, that we love, we sing? In our hymnal, maybe? How about, I'll start you guys off. Be Thou My Vision. There's the key. If you see those words like thou, thy, be thou my vision, it's a hymn of prayer. Great is thy faithfulness, hymn of prayer. Rock of Ages, that's a great one. Uh, o Christ, our hope, our heart's desires, or our heart's desire. We praise thee, O God. There's another one. These are all hymns of prayer. And actually, we'll see. We're going to end today with a hymn of prayer, uh, which is in your handout. Lord Jesus Christ, how far you came. 
So we see hymns fall under the category of prayer. Even so, many people rarely think of hymn singing as a form of prayer. Uh, subconsciously, I think we draw a distinction between praying and singing, maybe because we do the former with our eyes closed and our head bowed, and we do the other one with a book in our hands and we're standing up reading words. Um, also, many people believe that prayer should be extemporaneous, and uh, since songs are pre-written, they must not be prayers. Uh, there's this idea that if a prayer is not spontaneous, it is not authentic, and it's not spirit-directed. On the contrary, I think it'd probably be better if we took a little bit more time to consider what we were praying and, and thought about the words of our prayers. Um, we, you know, we should think seriously and consider seriously what we're saying as we speak to Almighty God. Uh, so the same is true for hymn singing. We should not accept, expect worship to only be genuine when we have some kind of emotional experience, you know, when we can let loose and let our emotions fly. You know, people talk about, like, worship was really great today. You've heard this, once again, maybe not here. Uh, but, you know, you hear people talk about, oh, worship was wonderful today. Usually what they're really talking about is, you know, that chord progression on that last verse was so intense, and I really got, you know, I got butterflies in my, in, in, you know, in, in my stomach, and it just felt so great. Uh, you know, worship was great today. Wow. Like, what about, what, what about uh, you know, the sermon? Did you learn anything in the sermon? What about your confession? You know, that, that does not make up worship, this emotional experience. Uh, we should not only be engaging our affections and our emotions when we sing, but also our mind. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. That's what Paul says. I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So we need to be thinking about what we're singing. I know some of you probably... Uh, don't like hymns that much, as I've mentioned in the first week, because maybe the words are archaic to you, they're not too familiar to you, they don't, you, know, you don't feel like they speak to you, or you think the tunes are boring, and so on. And this can take the wind out of your sails when you come to worship. You don't feel like singing, or, or even worse, you want to find a different church. You know, God only knows how many splits there have been inside churches over this, this whole worship wars issue. Um, but hymn singing and worship music is not entertainment. There's another criteria. What makes a good hymn good? Is it trying to entertain you? It's not a good hymn. Hymn singing is not entertainment. It's for the purpose of praise, proclamation, and prayer. And if it takes a little work for you to understand fully a text, I I remember I I encourage you, then read it the night before. Pastor Brown puts out what hymns we're going to be singing on on the website, on Facebook. Read it beforehand or come early and and sit down in the uh, the pew instead of talking to people and just spend two minutes reading through the hymns we're going to be singing. Uh, Pastors should explain words that might be unfamiliar to people. These are all things we can do to help us understand what we're singing. To remember, our our singing is not just to engage the spirit, the affections, the emotions. It, It is also to engage the mind. That's what Paul is encouraging us to do in this verse. And remember who you're singing to. This is, this is our God who has saved us from sin and death. He's worth putting a little effort into our worship, right? Uh, you know, if it wasn't for the Reformation, we might not be singing at all in church. Truly. We might not be singing at all. Back in, in pre-Reformation time, in the Roman churches, the priests chanted in Latin, and professional choirs sang in Latin, but the congregations didn't sing a word. And they certainly didn't sing a word in their own language. The Reformation is what put the Psalter hymnal in your hands today. The Reformation is the reason you're able to sing praise to God in your own language. So that we could praise him, that we could proclaim his truth, that we could pray to him. 
in words we understand, in words that are, are accessible to us. So I hope that encourages some of you who may be on the fence about hymn singing, uh, you know, perhaps a little less thrilled about hymnody in general, and maybe even those of you who are a little shy about singing in public. There's, there's a whole other problem. Uh, some of us who are shy to sing, sing out, sing out. We're, we're singing praise to our God. This is, uh, here's some advice from John Wesley. I know we don't agree <laughs> always with the Wesley brothers, but uh, John Wesley, when the hymnal he and his brother published in 1761, he wrote in the introduction seven, seven directions for singing in public worship. I want to read two of them to you, and this is encouragement for you when you consider hymn singing. Before I say this, actually, let me, let me say, I said, you know, hymn singing is not entertainment. That doesn't mean it's supposed to be boring and dead and dull. And those of you who feel that way, that was part of the point of this course, to point out some things that make our hymnody beautiful and to get you to appreciate that and to encourage you as you worship. So I, I just want to say that. I wasn't trying to advocate for boring worship. I'm just saying the point is not entertainment. So anyways, here, here are two tips from our, our, our dear saint, John Wesley. Number four, sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you are half dead. <laughs> Beware of singing as if you are half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Then he, this is, this is convicting here, he says, Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than you were when you sung the songs of Satan. <laughs> so there we go. Let's sing with, with boldness and not like we're half dead. Here's number seven, his last one. Above all, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound but offered to God continually. So so shall your singing be such as the Lord will approve of it when he comes again in the clouds of heaven. So there's, there's my encouragement to you mediated through John Wesley. Sing with good courage not like you're half dead, and above all, sing spiritually with an eye to pleasing God more than yourself and others. So we talked about praise, proclamation, and prayer, and I want us to end today looking and learning a hymn of prayer. It's the first one on your handout. Lord Jesus Christ, How Far You Came, written by Eric Alexander in 2001. Eric Alexander is a, was a Scottish minister. He's still living, but he's retired. was a Scottish minister. Uh, well known, if you haven't heard of him, he was pastor of his church, St. George's Tron, in Glasgow. He was the mentor of another person you probably know, Sinclair Ferguson, who took over his position there. And um, uh, Eric Alexander began writing hymns when Boyce stopped writing hymns. This is his collection, Eric Alexander's collection, Hymns of Prayer. And this is what he says. When I was visiting, visiting James Boyce one day, this is as he was gravely ill with cancer, He had a very special request to make. This is what Boyce said. You will know that Paul Jones and I have been working on some hymns. I've written the words and he's composed the music and we plan to publish them. The problem is, is that it's going to be one of those tasks I will leave unfinished. And I was wondering, would you be prepared to try writing a few hymns? And he says, well, well, my esteem for Jim Boyce was so great that whatever he asked me to do at that moment, I probably would have said yes if it in any way would help you. But what I actually said to him was, Jim, I have never written a hymn or poem in my life. But if you are asking me to try, I most certainly will. And then I'm glad he did because these are some of the best hymns I've ever seen. And I want to introduce to you, Lord Jesus Christ, how far you came. You'll see from the heading there, it's based on Philippians 2. 
famous passage about the humility of Christ coming down to earth and taking on our form and dying in our place. So you'll see some things that we've been pointing out. The use of parallelisms, Lord Jesus Christ, how far you came. Lord Jesus Christ, how deep your love, etc., etc. Uh, so it's beautifully uh, based in Scripture, and he really sets this, this text in a way that draws out the truths that have always been there. And the tune that goes with it is a perfect setting. Let me play it through for you once, and then we'll talk a little bit about the music as you read along. Beautiful tune there. Uh, you'll notice in the, if you look down to the third line where it says human frame and where our nature for the first verse, uh, the music, the melody hits its lowest point. Uh, and this is fitting at that particular moment in the text for all verses because it's uh, talking about uh, the depths of shame that our Lord had to face in, in taking on our nature, um, how he became a servant the depths of the sea in the fourth verse, and also in the third verse, this idea of not being able to raise our eyes to behold Christ uh, because of our sin. The same idea is used in the first line, Lord Jesus Christ, how far you came. You see in the word came, we hit that low note again, which you know obviously is picturing Christ coming down from heaven, and it works about, uh, for the second verse, how deep your love and how great your grace. In the fourth verse, though, do you see what's the problem with the fourth verse? What word is on that low note? High. So that didn't work. So they actually made a, 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 a Paul Jones, when he wrote the tune, uh, made a, a change for the fourth verse only, where you sing that low note up an octave. So for the fourth verse, it changes to this. So uh, it's just kind of flipped it and mirrored it, and it fits much better that way. When we sing it, if you forget to do that, it's okay, because it still sounds fine to sing it low. But that just shows how um, in, uh, intentional Jones was in, in setting this text to music. Also, you can see the, um, the tune title, Kenosis. Anybody know why it's called Kenosis? Or can take a stab at it? I know, I know there are people here who know it. So, What's that? We have a, yeah, that's right. We have a Greek expert sitting in the back. What, what does kenosis mean? That's true. I, I'm not in Greek too yet, so it's okay. It's Christ Very good. Thank you. Thank you, James. Yeah, Christ emptying himself. So that's, the, that's where we get the, the tune name there, and that's the idea of this text. Um, okay, so let's, let's learn this. Repeat after me. And remember, this is a direct address to Christ. We're, we're praying to him, thanking him for what he, what he has done, and, or, and even praising him in the last verse. We'll see. Uh, so repeat after me. Lord Jesus Christ, how far you came from heaven's highest throne. Try that. Lord Jesus Christ, how far you came from heaven's highest throne. And here we're going to see there's use of melodic um, cycles and sequences here. To take on you our human frame. Try that. 
to take on you our human frame and wear our nature, bear our shame. Try that. And wear our nature, bear our shame for our sin to atone. For our sin to atone. Put both those lines together now. For our sin to atone. For our sin to atone. Very nice. Let's put it all together beginning in verse 1. And let's, let's um, consider this our closing prayer now as we sing. Lord Jesus Christ, how far you came from heaven's highest throne to take on you our human frame and wear our nature, bear our shame for our sin to atone for our sin to atone Lord Jesus Christ how deep your love for sinners poor and lost that you should come from heaven above a servant be our sins remove and save at such a cost and save at such a cost Lord Jesus Christ how great your grace to die the death you died accursed for a sinful race we scarce can look upon your face our Lord is crucified our Lord is crucified remember we go up in this last verse Lord Jesus Christ exalted high by God the Father's word oh speed the day when all will cry in heaven and earth and sea and sky that Jesus Christ is Lord that Jesus Christ is Lord